coming up on Garden Talk. You could take all of those elements, combine them, multiply that number by five, and you still have more carbon inside of the plants by dry weight. Carbon can turn into hundreds of thousands of different molecules. Some of them you can see, others you can't. Sometimes you can detect it as aromatic and you can smell it. Other times you can't. So it's really difficult to pinpoint carbon deficiencies. Organic farmers have living soils, and the living soil is basically like a giant sponge for carbon. So if you feed the soil, you take care of your microbes and your fungi, and you're doing things like molasses or amino acid supplementation with plant ferments, that's a really good way to supplement the carbon. How do you deliver carbon most effectively? One of those is CO2. The other is soluble carbon. And if you do it right, you can actually far surpass that quality metric you would otherwise assume to get with no CO2 supplementation whatsoever. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, aka Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 76. In this episode, I interview Nick Nikolaev. He has been gardening for 25 years and is the owner of Rooted Leaf Agritech. He has a significant amount of knowledge when it comes to carbon, and that's what we get into today. He not only gets into some beginner and intermediate knowledge, but dives into some biochemistry for all of you looking for some advanced knowledge. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to Gorilla Grow Tent for sponsoring this episode. Gorilla is well known for their quality grow tents. They have a super strong frame, thick canvas density, and a height adjusting roof. It comes with a one foot extension kit and a two foot extension kit is optional so you can grow even taller plants. They also have the light line, same quality as the original Gorilla Grow Tents but with a few key design changes. Go to their website growstrongindustries.com and use discount code MRGROWIT for 15% off. AC Infinity is sponsoring this episode. They have two different series LED grow lights, the Ion Board and the Ion Grid. The Ion Board fixtures are board style and use Samsung LM301B diodes, while the Ion Grid series has an open center design and uses Samsung LM301H diodes. I'll have a link in the description section below so you can learn more about these grow lights and you can use discount code MRGROWIT if you're buying off their website acinfinity.com that discount code works for all AC Infinity items. Or discount code MRGROWIT15 if you're buying off Amazon. Big thanks to Happy Hydro for sponsoring this video. Happy Hydro now has complete grow tank kits. And many of the kits actually come with my beginner grow book. The kits consist of AC Infinity grow tents, an AC Infinity ventilation system, your choice of lighting, whether it be Spider Farmer, HLG, The Green Sunshine Company, or Grower's Choice, Soham Living Soil, nutrients, oscillating fans, and more. I will leave a link to Happy Hydro Grow Tank kits down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MRGROWIT for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Nick Nikolaev. How you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for asking. Today we're going to talk about the essential element carbon. So lots of people think it's just CO2 being added to their environment and that's it, which is pretty far from the truth, right? There's so much more to it. And uh, Nick's going to break it down for us today. 
But uh, before we get deep into carbon, what I like to do with all the guests is an introduction. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into gardening? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been gardening for a very long time. I live in the Pacific Northwest, just north of Seattle a little bit. Um, That's where we have a manufacturing plant. But even before I got into manufacturing fertilizers and being so interested in carbon, uh, you know, I come from a family where my parents kind of, you know, forced us to go out in the garden and and spend time outside. So I learned uh, from an early age quite a bit about different types of plants, different things that people are growing as food, for example. Um, So I've always been intrigued by it, you know, the idea that you can um, grow very nutrient-dense food for yourself and you can kind of provide for yourself and and take care of your family and its needs um, just as a result of gardening. So, yeah. Yeah. So what would you say your overall gardening style is? You know, some people are indoors, some people are outdoors, some people go after organic or synthetic, some people are in hydroponic systems while they're either in soil or even cocoa. What's your style of gardening? I mean, I, I guess you could say I prefer a balance between all of those things. I think there's value to controlled environment agriculture where you can grow things indoors like mint and, you know, other crops year round, for example, and you can target specific light frequencies to kind of generate the compounds you're looking for. Um, but I also find a huge amount of passion and inspiration behind being a little bit more connected to nature and just growing outdoors and kind of being, you know, in tune with the season. So. You know, that being said, I also kind of take the same approach to the question of, you know, organic versus uh, synthetic fertilizers. I do think that there are uh, good ideas that have come out of, you know, synthetic fertilizer industries. I do think that there's some products that are synthesized that, you know, they're good. Plants respond very well to them. They're natural in the sense that they're, you know, biologically available uh, to plants and to microbes, and they don't really cause uh, detrimental effects when used appropriately. Um, same thing is true of organic agriculture. I think there's a lot of great, great ideas. There's maybe a couple of things that um, have been shown to like, if you refine them over time, that they just perform a little bit better. So um, yeah, yeah, I think a fair balance of everything is good. Nice, nice. So let's get into carbon and kind of just starting with a basic question. What is carbon and how is it beneficial for plants? Uh, I always refer to carbon as the forgotten macronutrient. You know, because when people typically think of plant fertilizers, what comes to mind is, you know, the NPKs, so nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, right? CalMag fixes everything that cures everything. Um, And then sulfur and other micronutrients that are responsible in very, very small quantities. But the truth of the matter is you could take all of those elements, combine them, multiply that number by five, and you still have more carbon inside of the plants by dry weight in almost all cases. I think there's probably very few exceptions with certain crops, like maybe horsetail accumulates a ton of silicon. And so you, you have tighter numbers around the carbon thing, but you know, by and large, every plant that people are familiar with from more medicinal and therapeutic plants, even to um, food crops, like if we're measuring bricks inside of grapes, for example, or alpha acids inside of hops that are used to um, brew beer, um, all of those compounds that are being measured and produced by the plants uh, come down to being mostly carbon by weight. So carbon is a very important macronutrient. The way that most people think about carbon supplementation is, you know, the traditional or conventional approach is to find a way to um, seal off a space and introduce carbon dioxide into the equation. <clears throat> Sometimes you see this in a greenhouse type of setting as well, but it's a little bit more tricky to do, more difficult to do. 
And it's not really like if you think about CO2 as just being one molecule versus the hundreds of thousands of different molecules that plants produce with carbon, it's almost like it doesn't do it justice. Maybe there's a better way to supplement different types of carbon, different flavors of carbon that are maybe a little bit more useful to something specific the plants are trying to do. So uh, carbon, I think, is a very interesting macronutrient and an element that a lot of growers overlook, partially because it's really complex chemistry. Um, you know, I can give you an example with nitrogen. For example, when most crops are deficient in nitrogen, one of the first things that you see is a yellow leaf. And so this indicates that there's a problem with chlorophyll biosynthesis in the plants. So if you supplement the nitrogen that the plants are looking for, that um, chlorophyll deficiency goes away and the, the green color comes back to the leaf, you know? And, and that's kind of a very linear type of thing to say, well, the nitrogen that's in the fertilizer, whether it's organic or conventional, you apply it on the crop and you see this, you know, color change. Carbon can turn into hundreds of thousands of different molecules. Some of them you can see, others you can't. Sometimes you can detect it, it's aromatic and you can smell it. Other times you can't. So it's really difficult to pinpoint carbon deficiencies in plants, unlike it is magnesium and sulfur and nitrogen, those will all yellow the leaves. And so you only have, you know, so many different reasons as to why it can be deficient in these elements and why you're seeing the types of, you know, discoloration on the leaf surface that you might be seeing in your garden. So carbon on the flip side is very complex. And I think that just maybe scares some people or, you know, turns them off from it. So, but it's a very important macronutrient for sure. Gotcha. So how is carbon intaken by the plant and how is it metabolized? Uh, so carbon is taken in primarily through uh, an enzyme called Rubisco. This, 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 this is the most abundant enzyme on planet Earth. Um, <clears throat> it has one job, basically. It's like a giant vacuum cleaner that sucks CO2 out of the air and it smashes it into a, uh, a sugar, basically, a phosphate sugar. And this makes it soluble for the plants to then take it and move it around, you know, because CO2 is not very soluble in water, unlike sugars are highly soluble in water. It's kind of like along the lines of if you have um, a can of soda and you open it up on a warm summer day, all that CO2 wants to leave. And if you leave your can of soda out for even 20 or 30 minutes, you're going to find all that CO2 has escaped. So plants have to deal with the same laws of, <clears throat> same laws of physics in that the CO2 they're trying to capture wants to be released. It wants to kind of go back out because it's not very soluble. So what they do is they have to transform it chemically. They use the energy of the sun to actually power this process. The process involves <clears throat> taking CO2 out of the air and smashing it into a sugar that's then useful as a building block to make things like new, you know, new root hairs, for example, or specific types of sugar that can feed microbes in the soil or other compounds that can help plants deal with nutrient deficiencies, as is true with the case of phosphorus. Plants will <clears throat> take that carbon out of the air and they'll make a very specific flavor of carbon to then inject into the roots just outside of, or I'm sorry, just, you know, inject it into the soil just outside the root hairs. And this compound frees up phosphorus that may be unavailable to the plants. It may be there, it just needs a little bit of chemical transformation. And so the plants use the power of the sun, take in the carbon, and then squeeze this compound out through the roots to allow uh, nutrient solubilization and nutrient uptake to happen. So it's uh, it starts off as CO2 in the air by and large, but then quite literally anything and everything a plant can do 
is going to revolve around carbon metabolism. I mean, roots growing through soil is a function of carbon for sure, um, because carbon makes up the actual what the root hairs are. It's like 80 to 90 percent, roughly, I would, I would say, you know, dehydrated root mass is predominantly carbon by weight. A lot of people are supplementing CO2 these days. They want that increased levels of CO2 in their environment, but that's not the only way to really get carbon in there, right? What are some ways to supplement carbon? There's, you know, carbon-based fertilizers, generally speaking, are relatively new. You know, typically we have conventional or salt-based or synthetic fertilizers, and then we have something that's more natural or organic. Um, sometimes they're plant and animal-based. You may find things like kelp extracts out there on the market, plus crab shell meal and fish hydrolysates and emulsions, things of that nature, certainly blood meal, bone meal, all this stuff. So you have these two kind of categories or umbrellas that have been defined for you know the past at least 100 years, if not several thousand years. Um, I would say you know a lot of the natural and organic options out there do have carbon inside of them, but um, there's sort of new technologies being developed that target carbon specifically, and those are the carbon-based fertilizers. So um, without, you know, getting into something specific like a carbon-based fertilizer line, you know, the organic options might include something like the kelp extract, um, molasses, any kind of plant ferment, which I know the KNF guys of the Korean natural farming community, um, they're very heavy into that type of stuff. And what happens during these reactions is you get these really soluble forms of carbon that, that are like powerful electrolytes, you know, so they can help plants maintain an electrical charge balance. And this is really important because they're taking in energy from the sun, which is, you know, inherently just electron energy initially. Um, so it helps them to, you know, perform this process of charge balance if you can get the right kinds of carbon into them. Um, CO2 in the air is um, interesting because it's just a single uh, carbon atom. Just one is in there, but it's also fully oxidized, the O2. So as plants go through this process, it requires energy to break down. Whereas if you're focused on like good soil health, good soil chemistry, maybe you got my microbes that you're supplementing, amino acids, if you're doing like plant ferments, you're getting carbon from that for sure. And that's going to help energize the soil. It's going to um, get the plants to grow a little bit more vigorously. So yeah. And I don't think, you know, on the, uh, on the synthetic or the conventional side, I don't think there's too many um, options out there that are carbon based. I think that a lot of the synthetic fertilizers have just focused on things like, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium sort of at the expense or at the sacrifice of carbon. Cause you're not going to find, you know, like a bloom booster is typically just a monopotassium phosphate. So you really have like two elements. Sometimes some manufacturers will throw in some sulfur because sulfur can help in the flowering stage for certain crops. Um, this is particularly true of tobacco and hops and other such, um, you know, flowering plants. Uh, it, but, you know, there's no carbon as a macronutrient kind of source there overall. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's more and more people going towards the carbon-based fertilizers and uh, hearing a lot of great results from people using them. So that's one way to supplement. And then kind of the other way you mentioned was the CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Supplementing CO2. I want to hone in on that a little bit more uh, and we'll probably circle back around to the carbon-based fertilizers, but let's talk about supplementing CO2 in the air. There are so many different ways to go about it. I mean, I had the, the TMB Naturals canisters, uh, those, you know, you shake those up every day, put them in there 
there and they release CO2. You've got those uh, CO2 exhale bags, the mushroom bags that don't actually fruit. Um, that's a way to do it. People are bringing in tanks. Can you talk to us about the different ways to supplement CO2 in the grow environment? Yeah, the most uh, controlled way to do it is to take in a tank of CO2. Like you mentioned, you just, you know, <clears throat> make sure that the room that you're working with is sealed so it doesn't off-gas all the CO2. And then you need the proper dehumidification load with air conditioning potential. And some of these systems get pretty expensive, but what it allows people to do is to target to the nearest, say, part in a million or 100 parts per million, the CO2 concentration in the air. Um, oftentimes, some of these facilities that do this type of controlled agriculture, they'll actually have sensors set up to automatically open and close the valves. So if they're looking to maintain a particular range of CO2 saturation in the air, um, they can do that automatically more or less. Um, you know, some of the other ways to do it, if, you know, in a more simple approach, maybe the room isn't perfectly sealed or you do want a lot of just natural airflow, um, you know, as is true in the case of, uh, you know, like high desert areas, for example, they may benefit from structuring their approach a little bit differently. That's when you would look at doing something like either a carbon-based fertilizer, um, you know, targeted specifically for that purpose, or you might do something more natural, like a lot of um, organic farmers have living soils. And the living soil is basically like a giant sponge for carbon. So if you feed the soil, you take care of your microbes and your fungi, and you're doing things like, you know, molasses or amino acid supplementation with, with plant ferments, um, that's a really good way to supplement the carbon into the soil and just have that kind of process go naturally. Because there, there's really just two phases of carbon as sort of like umbrella categories. One would be uh, a, a soluble, you know, a liquid form of carbon. It's got to go in the water. And the second one would be in the air. You know, besides that, there's no other medium that's really beneficial. Um, so in the air, obviously, like I just mentioned earlier, presents a little problem because plants need energy to actually process that form. Whereas if you take care of it, take care of it in the soil, uh, the energy might already be down there just in the form of a microbe or fungi helping the plants grow a little bit more efficiently overall. Okay. And then I know when supplementing CO2 through the air, there's actually a, a really good study. I believe it came out of Utah State University. And uh, they found that when they supplemented CO2 up to 1400 ppm, there was a 30% increase in biomass. So pretty significant uh, increase in biomass just from supplementing CO2 in the air. Now, of course, your other aspects need to be dialed in, right? Temperature, humidity, like VPD, your EC, all those things need to be dialed in in order for you to increase the CO2 and see the benefit from it. So I thought that was definitely worthy of mentioning. But my question in regards to that would be, what is the optimal amount of CO2 in PPM? It's a great question. And I think part of it comes down to, it's, a, it's um, you know, think about like a car engine. The amount of biomass that your um, crop may produce Maybe you measure it in bricks, like if you're growing uh, wine grapes, for example, that's a, a frequent measurement, or alpha acids in, in hops. Um, what you can do is basically equate that to like, that. that's the horsepower that your motor produced. The motor is obviously the plant and whatever's going on inside of it. So in order to get the maximum productivity or the maximum horsepower, you really have to figure out how to balance that motor with the proper amount of air and fuel coming in, with the right amount of spark, and then with the right, you know, sort of exhaust systems and transmission, all this stuff built around it. So Plants are very similar in that the spark is actually the spark of a motor is actually the light coming into the plant, and the air fuel ratio. You can think about that like the air would be your CO two concentration, which was your question, and then the fuel 
is the stuff that's coming in from the roots, the water that you're feeding the plant, plus all of the, you know, macronutrients and micronutrients. You got your balanced and dialed in EC load. What you notice is that as you crank up the CO2 and you crank up the light intensity, the plants actually need a little more fuel. Otherwise, they're going to become nutrient deficient. The issue with, um, well, the slippery slope, I should say, with CO2 supplementation is that if you do it properly, you're creating a larger demand for nutrient uptake for the plants. And the same is true in a reverse. If that, if you're feeding your plants a higher EC load and that EC is balanced to the spark or the light intensity that's coming in from your artificial or even natural light, um, then the plants inherently want more CO2. You know, so the optimal CO2, to put it short, kind of depends on how intense are your lights, how heavy are you feeding your plants in terms of nutrient strength and composition. Composition is very important. And then some of the peripheral stuff like the air conditioning, you know, potential and the dehumidification potential, plus what's going on in the soil, what kind of medium is somebody growing in? Because that's really the the sort of the transmission. You know, a lot of the um, soils out there may not be fine-tuned for the crops that are being grown inside of it. And so you lose a portion of the fertilizer load, for example, or the portion of the water uptake ability. Whereas if you have the right medium for the right crop, under the right light intensity and all that stuff, you get the maximum water uptake, you get maximum transpiration, and that just feeds the whole system as far as how much carbon can be taken in by the plants. I've seen a high-end benefit around 2,500 or 3,000 ppms, which is fairly high and very, very robust. But again, it's, it's a facility that is highly dialed in. They have the equivalent of you know 2,000 ppfd on these plants, and they have more dehumidifiers than you know, someone would ever in the right mind decide that's the number that I need is just kind of, you know, through trial and error and through, uh, sort of learning curves, this, this particular grower managed to realize like, Hey, in this sealed room where I'm pushing these plants with this much light intensity and this much CO2, I need this much environmental control. So, uh, as high as 3000, I would say on the minimum. And, um, if you dial in a good carbon based fertilizer program, you actually don't need to supplement CO2 at all because, the way that CO2 supplementation works is that CO2 delivers carbon. And so really what we're talking about is how do you deliver carbon most effectively? One of those is CO2. The other is soluble carbon. And if you do it right, you can actually far surpass in, in my, you know, what, what we've seen so far, you can kind of far surpass that quality metric you would otherwise assume to get with no CO2 supplementation whatsoever. Wow. That's crazy. 3000 PPM of CO2. That's way beyond anything I've ever heard of. I've heard of up to 2,000. And then I heard actually, if you're in an environment where there's over 2,000, 3,000, like it's unsafe to kind of be in that, be standing there and breathing that in and stuff like that. You get headaches or dizziness or something like that. So I'm sure there's some uh, safety precautions that you have to go through when you're trying to supplement that high, right? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely feel it after a while and it's not a, not an ideal um, scenario, but it's, it's like, you know, a high horsepower motor, for example, these are just the tires spinning. You know, it's not necessarily um, dialed in for maximum efficiency, but the facility is definitely dialed in to operate at this very, very high uh, performance level. And you know what? There are notable differences in terms of um, decrease in yield and quality if, you know, if this grower drops below 2,000 ppms of CO2. But uh, part of it is the biomass productivity is so high that of course, I mean, we're talking about numbers that are, you know, far exceed industry standards and what, what the average sort of is, is out there. Um, it's basically like if you had, you know, the ability on your 
hop or your grape farm, for example, to double the biomass per square foot or even in some cases triple it, um, that, that's effectively the equivalent of what we're talking about here. I've heard that the general guidance would be if your PPFD is at 1,000, your PPMs should be at 1,000. Would you say that's good general guidance or would you kind of refute that in a way? Uh, you know, this just, it's something that's so crop specific and even within crops, you have different, you know, cultivars of like basil and, and mint and things like that. And you have different, um, you know, different responses, basically some crops are really heavy feeders. Um, you may find particular cultivars like that tangerine sage that I was telling you about before the show, you know, I'm growing some tangerine sage right now. And what I'm finding is it's a, you know, it's a small plant, but it's a pretty heavy feeder overall. But the the, the potency, like it smells just like tangerine. It's the craziest plant. Um, I walked by the, when I walked by the nursery, I smelled the leaves and I was just like, dude, I looked at it and I was like, dude, I have to get this plant. It's just so pungent and so potent. Um, so part of it is, you know, the crops respond differently to light intensities and also different concentrations of, of uh, fertilizer and nutrients. And then really what is the composition of that nutrient? Um, I'd say an even bigger, factor is, is airflow through and, and transpiration potential through the plant. You may be able to get away with growing at a lower PPM if you can keep the plant constantly dry, drying out. You know, in a really dry environment, for example, if you focus on airflow, you're going to struggle keeping the plant and the soil wet enough in some cases. This can actually be an advantage if you know how to feed and set up the system properly. You know, but what it also lets you get away with is a lower PPM because you're watering more often. And so the plants are kind of going through that nutrient load uh, more rapidly anyways. Whereas other crops, I would say, you know, there's a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of performance gains that you would see if you fed pretty heavy. Some plants actually like to accumulate a little bit of extra nutrient load outside of the rhizosphere. Uh, maybe in some cases it, it kind of helps dial in the chemistry of what they're looking for. You know, some um, plants, for example, like acidic soils, I think tomatoes are a good example of that. They kind of prefer something that drains well and is slightly acidic, but also has tons of calcium inside of it. So these are kind of like weird things to have perfectly optimized in nature, but certainly in a controlled environment, um, you can achieve these things. So I'd say there's a range probably give or take about 25%, all things included plus or minus, you know, that makes sense. I want to get into CO2 monitors a little bit. Well, first of all, I hear that CO2 is a heavy gas and it tends to sink. I don't know if there's any truth in that or not. Maybe you can uh, say that's bro science or actual science. Uh, but due to that, people say your CO2 monitor shouldn't be placed like on the floor. Most people have it placed, you know, either within the plant canopy. Some people have it placed at soil level. Some people have it placed on their wall. Where should the CO2 monitor be placed in the grow environment? It's a great question. I think it comes down to airflow. You know, think about the composition of air is just like really, really tiny microscopic um, marbles, you know, that, that are just being pushed around. So if you think you got these marbles floating around in the air, some of those marbles are oxygen, others are CO2. I guess if you just let the physics dictate by gravity, the CO2 has the extra carbon. So of course it's going to be a little bit heavier, but in a lot of these grow rooms that supplement CO2, they have ample airflow. And I don't think that they are, you know, the, the airflow basically is pushing all of these marbles around. They're hitting each other. They're kind of getting into a flow. Ideally, you want laminar flow inside of your grow room, which is like the air is moving as one current. You don't have a bunch of chaotic flow with these marbles just kind of like hitting each other because what that does is it creates dead spots or it creates pockets of maybe humidity or even worse, low CO2 concentrations in the grow room. 
So, you know, if you had good airflow in a room and it circulated well, both uh, across like the horizontal perimeter of the room and also if you had a lot of vertical displacement between the ceiling and the floor, that would sort of homogenize the air overall. And what I would do is I would put, um, you know, CO2 probe probably at the canopy level overall for an environment like that, assuming that the airflow is good, because what I want to see off that sensor is what are my plants detecting in the air. The other thing that I've seen work pretty well is, uh, you know, if you have a sealed space, you've got an air handling unit, that air handling unit on the intake side, um, there's a CO2 sensor sometimes there because it lets you kind of see what is being pulled in to the ducting because in the ducting you might have a CO2 valve, you know, that that gets, you know, releases CO2. If a sensor says, hey, I need a little bit more, the valve automatically opens and dumps the equivalent of, you know, 50 or 100 ppms. You could have a sensor on the back end too. It just kind of depends on how complex, you know, you want to go and what the information that you're looking for is. But me personally, I like to see what my plants are having access to. So it kind of makes sense to first make sure the airflow is really good so everything is really even and uh, equalized throughout the whole room. And then thing number two is to put one um, at the canopy and see what the plants have access to. Maybe a little bit like one, one third of the way down or halfway down the plant. Okay. So if somebody's using those CO2 bags, for example, it's generally recommended to have it over the plants. So it'll sink down onto the plants or even the team B naturals canisters, for example, but you're saying as long as there's good airflow, that shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. I think good airflow is just going to allow you to take the same concentration of CO2 and spread it equally across the plant. Cause you know, the, if, if CO2 falls, it's, you know, think about it this way, like the top part of the plant is the one that's growing most vigorously. So in reality, you want to introduce that, that younger growth that's, you know, in the presence of the sun and taking up most of the water from the roots and transpiring that. That's the portion of the plant that you want to introduce to the most CO2 or the most carbon. So you should kind of focus on airflow a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think... You know, the ones that say, you know, put it above the plants, it'll kind of help via gravity just naturally get all that CO2 out. And once it's in that turbulent stream of airflow, um, it's going to get mixed up and it's going to get distributed to the plants pretty evenly. That makes sense. Now, supplementing CO2, let's say hypothetically they do have a tank and they really have their CO2 levels dialed in. Should they supplement CO2 only during lights on, only during lights off, or both? Unless you're growing like cacti um, in a desert or something like that, uh, you don't really find a benefit from supplementing CO2 at nighttime. Um, tomatoes, hops, wine grapes, um, anything like lettuce, broccoli, spinach, kale, potatoes, all this stuff, um, those like to take in the power of the sun while the sun is out and then use that to convert the CO2 that's out of the air. Cacti and, and certain other plants will uh, kind of do this this thing at nighttime. It's a little bit different, but their metabolic daytime, quote unquote, is actually when the sun sets because in a really dry and desiccating environment, the last thing the plants want to do is open up the pores and allow all the water to transpire. There's very little to begin with in the desert. So they, of course, like to keep their stomata closed to prevent that water loss during the day, but they still kind of like solar panels, you know, they, they take in the energy of the light, they store that in a chemical form and at nighttime, as the sun sets, they open up. That's why a lot of cacti are night blooming. You know, they produce flowers at nighttime. Um, but the best time to supplement CO2, by and large, for most crops is going to be during the day. 
uh, at nighttime, what I've seen work really well with certain types of plants is they actually like a little bit of fresh air. You know, if you have a sealed flowering room, um, what can happen is that, you know, during, depending on your grow environment and how intense the other parameters are, oftentimes when the lights uh, turn off and the plants go to sleep, there's a little bit of CO2 that's kind of released. You know, that el that level may go up a little bit. Part of it is just the you know, the, the room has changed significantly, lights on to lights off, changes the temperature and messes with the humidity and, and all that stuff in the plant. So CO2 kind of revolves around all that. And uh, what I've personally seen is that if you're, if you're in a sealed flowering room and you just do an air exchange at nighttime to drop the CO2 levels, you know, if you were at 1,500 to 1,700 um, during the day, then going down to maybe 800 to 1,000, you may actually see a benefit from um but yeah, you're not going to find much, if any, benefit at all from supplementing at nighttime for the majority of crops out there. Definitely good to know. Okay, let's get into some of the essential elements and how it's impacted by carbon intake. I know you have a lot of knowledge when it comes to this. I've seen some of your presentations that you have here on YouTube. So let's get into that. Let's start with nitrogen. How does nitrogen impact carbon intake? Well, boy, that's a very, very complex question. We can have a whole episode about that. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think the, the most uh, basic one, the most obvious one is chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is a pigment that plants use to capture the energy of the light, and they like to take that energy and they like to scrub CO2 out of the air. So if you're deficient in nitrogen, chlorophyll, you immediately recognize like, oh, hey, the leaves are yellow. That chlorophyll decrease means your plants are taking in way less light energy. So you don't get as good of a grow. Uh, and subsequently, the biomass and the yield may also be affected by nitrogen deficiencies. So it's a little bit interesting. I always perceive the um, macronutrients and the micronutrients just be tools that plants use to capture more carbon or to store that carbon or to help transform it into any number of different formats. These are all just tools like a hammer is a tool and you've got a chisel. You know, you've got very specific tools for very specific jobs. And this is the, the job that plants are trying to work on ultimately is how do I get more carbon? And they're like, okay, I'm going to take this piece of nitrogen and use it as a tool in the form of chlorophyll to power this process and take light energy and, and power the process of, you know, scrubbing CO2 out of there. The other one is an invisible enzyme, Rubisco. It's the most abundant enzyme on the planet. And Rubisco, as I mentioned earlier, just has one job. It just sucks CO2 out of there. And it's powered by chlorophyll, interestingly enough. That's where the energy comes from. So if you're deficient in chlorophyll, you look at your leaves, they're yellow. You're also deficient in the thing or there's not enough power coming to the thing that actually takes carbon out of the air. So immediately, by default, when you have a nitrogen deficiency, you're creating a carbon bottleneck inside of the plants. When you correct that deficiency, when you give them more nitrogen, they say, oh, great, thanks, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to use these tools uh, to capture more carbon now. You know, the tools being chlorophyll as a pigment and then um, rubisco as an enzyme. Um, that same thing is true of magnesium. You know, magnesium sits at the center of chlorophyll, and it also sits at the center of rubisco. So if you're deficient in magnesium, it's exactly the same thing. You're creating a bottleneck in carbon metabolism in the plants that can't metabolize. And so what happens in, in the case of all of these deficiencies, it doesn't matter if we're talking about nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium or calcium, magnesium, it doesn't matter which element we're talking about. The first thing that happens is that the plants uh, stop, you know, growing as fast. You, you find that the deficiency of nutrients is also more stunted growth. They don't grow as well, they don't grow as fast, they don't grow as robust, they don't gain as much biomass, 
they're not transpiring water as efficiently, they're getting burned more easily, and they overall just slow down. And this slowdown occurs because of the bottleneck and carbon metabolism. If you get all of these bottlenecks out of the way, and the plants can take in as much carbon as possible, whether it's CO2 in a sealed room or just in the soil chemistry that's really good and healthy and dialed in, the plants will grow like wildfire. There's nothing stopping them. They use all of the power of the sun in real time. There's nothing you know preventing them from growing. They got enough nitrogen so they can make chlorophyll. They have enough magnesium so they can power rubisco. They have enough phosphorus to make those phosphate sugars that I mentioned earlier. And this whole thing is just this balanced cycle that keeps going. It's like this engine that's perfectly fine-tuned that makes you know 2,000 horsepower. Wow, that's incredible. Moving on to phosphorus. How does phosphorus impact carbon intake? Well, phosphorus is um, required as an acceptor of CO2 out of the air. So when plants work on that CO2 that's floating around, um, well, it doesn't really float around. We won't get too far into that. But when, when plants take in that CO2 and they need to convert it into a soluble form, there's something that has to accept the CO2 that's coming out of the air and into a soluble form. That's where phosphorus fits in. It's a it's a constituent of a sugar that accepts the CO2, and oftentimes when plants are deficient in phosphorus, and that's that, that portion specifically, you know, they, they lack the ability to make those sugars, and that really limits the amount of carbon metabolism that can occur, and therefore it impacts the plants. This is why phosphorus-deficient plants have really stunted roots, for example, not as robust of a root system. The architecture of the plant may also suffer not nearly the surface area nor the biomass, um, because the biomass is defined by how much carbon comes into the plant. And so having a limitation on phosphorus, just like the nitrogen and the magnesium, it creates a bottleneck. But on the nitrogen and magnesium side, think about it like that's the light energy side, and that's the front end where the plants try to capture the CO2. But okay, once the light energy has been supplemented and once the CO2 has been you know, moved into the, the functional uh, spot for rubisco, the catalytic spot, um, phosphorus is required on the back end. So it's like you have a domino effect of how the nutrients are kind of uh, required. You know, maybe it helps to think about it that way. There's a little bit of time separation in terms of what's actually happening. So yeah, phosphorus required to absorb the CO2 into the plants from the air. So much good information. I didn't know a lot of that. So I'm sure this is going to be an episode where I just rewatch it and just like take notes and stuff nice. like that. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people tuning in right now that are taking notes. So it's hard to absorb it all within the matter of uh, one lesson here, I'm sure. Yeah. Let's move on to potassium. How does potassium impact carbon intake? Well, potassium is like the grand orchestrator of carbon metabolism. Um, there's a lot of enzymes that enzymes are just like tools or like workers. You know, they, they take a substrate just like a woodworker takes a raw block of wood and he may turn it into a beautiful ornate carving or something more functional, like actually has physical function. Maybe it's a lock box or a bread box or something like that. But enzymes are kind of the same way. They take these raw blocks of substrate, these building blocks, and they kind of convert them and shape them into a variety of different things. So a lot of enzymes will act on carbon. You know, the enzymes associated with sugar metabolism and with responses to you know, plant stressors, for example, if there's like a bug that's biting into your, your leaf tissue, you know, the plants will, they have these switches that they turn on and off, and these switches uh, are mediated by potassium. So when you have um, potassium, you know, fairly high levels of potassium in the plant, what, what you find is that the plants have the ability, they have the, um, you know, the ability to turn on those switches that regulate carbon metabolism. 
Um, one of the other interesting ways that potassium interacts with carbon is that it actually serves to store some carbon, large pools of carbon that are kind of like transitionary pools of carbon. You know, think about it like when plants take in carbon, that carbon doesn't get metabolized and moved to its end spot immediately. That end spot could be something like, um, you know, the, the compounds that are produced inside of hops, those really highly aromatic uh, alpha acids. Those are an example of what's called a, a sort of a, a metabolite. You know, that carbon has been moved down a pathway and that terminal final step where it's finally all said and done is with the production of that um, compound. You know, oftentimes it could be terpenes like in tomatoes, for example. You know, they produce a lot of terpenes and so do other crops like lavender, for example, produces a lot of terpenes that are all very therapeutic and stuff. But they move carbon from CO2, which is the origin point, down a very complex and very long line and series of different steps with enzymes, all of which potassium turns on and says, okay, take this carbon, do that with it, bop, 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 bop. They just go around and they do a bunch of things. Terminal metabolites are ones that the plant's like, okay, I'm done metabolizing the carbon. I'm going to sink the carbon. I'm going to put it into this form. There's the, the more important forms of carbon, the ones that potassium can directly interact with, are the ones that are in that transitionary state. They have been taken in by the plant, but they haven't been moved yet all the way through the system. And these pools of carbon plants, when they accumulate them, they actually accumulate energy inside of their systems. So if you have a lot of potassium, you can actually sink a lot of carbon inside of your plants. And that carbon is specifically in the form of um, organic acids. You know, it's been shown, for example, that as plants take in the light energy, they power this process of converting carbon into a soluble form. Once that carbon is in a soluble form, it finds its way to a potassium uh, ion, and those are basically neutralized with each other. They're highly soluble. They're perfectly balanced in terms of their charge and their functional sort, uh, you know, uh, sources of carbon for the plant and also more potassium in case one of these enzymes needs an on-off switch or something like that, you know. Um, so getting more potassium into your plants allows you to physically and chemically stuff more carbon inside of your plants. If you don't have, let's say you have a sealed flowering room and you've got CO2 supplementation, um, if, if you are deficient in potassium, it's a much smaller amount of carbon that you can fit into your plants. You may find that the upper limit or the upper benefit is 500 to 600 ppms of carbon when you're deficient in potassium. But at the moment you get that potassium level up, let's say you double your potassium to like 250 to 300 ppms of potassium, all of a sudden the appetite that the plants have for carbon goes way up in the maximum amount that you can find a benefit from goes through the roof because inside of the plants, the potassium and the carbon have to meet and say, okay, this is the middle neutral state. Any excess carbon because of the deficiency of potassium just gets relieved. You know, that's part of the reason that the CO2 levels at nighttime could rise in a plant is because that charge balance isn't being maintained. So they release the CO2. They can't, they physically have no, you know, ability to deal with it. That's super interesting. And when you're talking about specific PPMs of, you know, pat potassium, for example, or really specific PPMs of anything, it's more for hydroponic systems to where you have a control, right? As far as you can actually measure out and precision feed these plants, right? Is that kind of what you're mentioning when you talk about specific PPMs? Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's it's definitely applicable to the controlled environment, guys. But I also think that um, for standard or conventional agriculture, it makes sense to try to think about things in ratios rather than quantities or amounts, which is a little bit different. You know, traditional agriculture, I think, is still kind of rooted in like, okay, how many pounds per acre do we apply and what are the individual things that we're looking for? 
whereas the more you know advanced approaches to agriculture are now looking at things in terms of nutrient composition, ratios to one another, how many parts in a million do you want as opposed to how many pounds per acre. Um, and this all takes into account like the use efficiency of nutrients plus the use efficiency of water because we're kind of getting to a, a spot globally speaking where it's very important to consider you know the the efficiency of both of these compounds there's not unlimited supplies of phosphorus that are easily accessible um, and then same thing for fresh water it is actually a very valuable resource in some areas that have to deal with dry conditions or arid conditions they may not have access to as much water that they did the year before so you know all things considered in a global um, climate that's sort of you know constantly changing and actively presenting challenges for farmers one of the ways to address those challenges is to be very mindful about how efficient you're using the water um, and mindful about how you're using each nutrient down to the nearest part per million. I mean, that's really the best way to go. So, Gotcha. Let's move on to calcium. How does calcium impact carbon intake? Well, calcium is a very interesting element. It, uh, it helps regulate you know, circadian rhythms inside of plants, sugar metabolism inside of plants, one of the most direct pathways is when the plants take up calcium, they use it as a building block in their cell wall. You know, just like humans use lime to make structures, lime is calcium, basically. And um, it, it makes basically cement inside of the cell walls of plants. And so what they have to do partially is take an energy from the sun and power that whole carbon fixation process. But once the carbon arrives at a particular state, you know, potassium has turned on a switch to make this enzyme active, this enzyme may be associated with pectic acid biosynthesis. Pectic acid is kind of like the glue or that little, um, it's almost like the cement of the walls. And there's, the, there's enzymes that will take calcium and combine it with pectic acid to make calcium pectate, which is a pretty important building block for plants in their cell walls. And the more you can get calcium into the, the cell walls of plants, the better overall their ability to resist uh, you know, disease pressures to resist changes in the environment, uh, light intensity, things of that nature. Um, generally speaking, calcium is required in very large amounts for the plants. Um, and it's also one of those elements that if you figure out how to get it metabolized properly and get it to grow inside of your kale or your uh, broccoli in particular, um, you're going to find that the nutrient density of those food crops goes through the roof because you, ha you have more calcium inside of there, right? You want more of the calcium to be present inside of the crop so you can take it, you can eat it, and then you get more of a benefit. Well, the best way to do that for the plants, at least from the plant's perspective, is to have more of those stored pools of carbon that I was talking about. Those ones that haven't quite been made into, you know, the pectic acid that's going to get combined with the calcium and then shoved into a cell wall, right? Once it's there, it's a little more difficult for the plants to break it down and repurpose it. They actually have to spend a lot more energy than it's worth. Um, that's why calcium deficiencies you know, will show themselves in the newest growth of the plant because you need this constant supply of calcium to be present to the plants in the transpiration stream in order for them to be able to take that calcium, make the cell walls really thick, really robust, you know, able to resist light intensity that's maybe a little bit too much for such young and thin and sensitive tissue and do all that stuff. And then as the plant continues to grow, um, you know, it, it again needs this constant supply of calcium in there. So... Cell walls are a really, really important function of calcium and carbon metabolism and how the two come together to, um, you know, ultimately uh, sink both of those into the plant. The other, you know, calcium is not only a structural element, but it's also a functional element. 
in the sense that the way calcium works inside of plants is much like how neurons work inside of the human brain. There's this firing that's going on, this communication between neurons to help build this picture that the brain has or this understanding or perception of reality. Um, plants are actually, interestingly enough, very, very similar. They use calcium in similar waves, ways. Um, there's these waves that actually get propagated, these calcium waves um, that spread information across every cell of the plant. And so if you look at when plants respond to like a mechanical stressor, let's say you take a pair of garden shears and it's time to give your you know plants a haircut or maybe you just want to trim them up a little bit. Um, as soon as you you know, cut the plants, uh, there's this calcium signaling event that happens within the plants. They, there's this propagation of calcium waves that fire off each other inside of the plant and help spread this message. And in certain cases, it could be a localized response. Like if there's a disease pressure that's trying to come in, maybe it's like a fungal predator that's trying to break in, those calcium waves will help spread information to the rest of the plant and make the plant aware that there's, uh, you know, a danger, there's some kind of threat. And so the whole plant responds to what is actually um, originating from a very localized place in the plant. It's a very, very small surface area that the fungi or that the insect is biting into. But somehow the message gets spread across the whole plant, and the whole plant responds. And that is a function of calcium as not only you know structural piece in the cell walls, but also an electrochemical functional thing like neurons in the human brain. Okay. And then I imagine magnesium, there's some similarities there. I mean, you hear about calcium and magnesium being paired up on things. I'm sure there's a lot of differences too, but uh, can you talk to us about magnesium? How does magnesium impact carbon intake? Yeah, magnesium, um, you know, when plants are taking in the energy of the light, really what they're trying to do is uh, convert that to chemical energy because the chemical energy is the one that plants use to power all the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, chlorophyll, um, rubisco, uh, even the phosphate sugars, that requires chemical energy for the plants to, you know, recycle all of them like they do with a lot of these. These are just cyclical um, or even generate new, you know, new molecules that are similar, new chlorophyll, new rubisco. This stuff requires energy. Um, in, the, in the process of converting light energy into chemical energy, magnesium is actually the thing that uh, plants you know, rely on in order to make a molecule called ATP. And ATP is a very high energy molecule that is ultimately created when plants, you know, facilitate this process of converting sunlight energy into chemical energy. That chemical energy is actually ATP in part. There are other molecules, but ATP is like the really, really valuable one. It's very high energy. Well, it turns out that it's not ATP actually, like a lot of people have heard and maybe assume it to be. It's actually magnesium ATP. Magnesium is the carrier, it's the chelating agent for it, and it helps bind up the ATP and allow it to be transported to where it needs to go. And so if you have a deficiency in magnesium, um, you have this bottleneck in terms of the ATP that can be made. And ATP is like, I mean, it's like, you know, having US dollars versus having ounces of gold. I'll much rather take the ounces of gold. You know, that's something that the value difference is quite dramatic between more basic forms of chemical currency or chemical energy for the plants and really the holy grail, which is ATP. If you look at all of these energy-producing systems inside of biological systems, like humans, for example, we breathe in oxygen, and that drives what's called oxidative phosphorylation. We make ATP using the power of oxygen, you know, and we also break down matter that plants produce. But plants also similarly take in energy from the light, and they use that to make ATP. So universally across all species, it doesn't matter if you're 
you know, a plant or if you're a human, uh, ATP for your entire biological system is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable, valuable energy currency there is. And having a deficiency in magnesium uh, ultimately means you have a deficiency in ATP because it's magnesium ATP that is actually the energetic molecule. It's not just ATP. Lots of good information there. While we don't have time to go over every single essential element and how uh, it's impacted by carbon intake, maybe we'll save that for a part two. I don't know. But uh, if the audience demands it, yeah, we could probably get him on for a part two in the future, I'm sure. Yeah, that'd be fun. Now, a lot of things that you talked about for clarification purposes is biochemistry, right? Um, now, I'm myself, I'm just learning regular chemistry. Would you say that chemistry is kind of a prerequisite? You should learn that first before biochemistry. And then also, do you have any other resources, like people who want to learn more about biochemistry, where they should go? Yeah, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I think the best way to learn is to, it's a very simple process, actually just read something about plants that is interesting for you. And I, I prefer to go to the Journal of Experimental Botany that Oxford has because there's always good topics. You can look back through the years. They have a number of different uh, topics that they've covered. But, you know, the, the thing about the learning process with this stuff is it gets really complex and there's oftentimes a lot of wormholes. And there's even lingo sometimes that doesn't make sense, like reduction and oxidation. It, it can be very confusing for people. And so it really depends on how you frame your interest and what your passion is. So I find that this is easy to do if you go and read just one paper a day and find one topic that's interesting. Maybe you're curious about how plants turn sugars into things like, you know, terpenes inside of lavender. How does that wonderful fragrance get produced by the plants? You know, read a paper about it and then find, ask at least one question that arose when you read that paper, ask one question to yourself, what would I want to learn more about? What, what was confusing or what didn't make sense? And if you just go through that same process over and over and over again, you'll eventually get to a spot where you um, have a much deeper understanding of you know, plant physiology, not only the, the chemistry of it all, but also the biochemistry, the organic chemistry, carbon chemistry side associated, because that's really the Pandora's box. Once you open that up, it's, the inside is now the outside, so you can no longer close it. Good luck. <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate you coming on to the podcast today. Lots of great information. I'm going to have to rewatch this and uh, let this absorb into my brain a little bit more because uh, lots of things that I didn't know that you covered in this episode. Wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Uh, come check us out on Instagram. Give us a follow, The Rooted Leaf. And then you can also check out our website, rootedleaf.com. If you guys have more specific questions, just feel free to email me directly, you know, nick at rootedleaf.com, N-I-K at rootedleaf.com is a good email. I like to talk about carbon chemistry and all this type of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really just a passion of mine. And as far as future plans, you know, we are, uh, we're working on a, a couple of really cool things. Um, right now, you know, the focus has been on just getting the, uh, you know, the, the carbon-based fertilizer line that we're manufacturing, kind of getting it out there to more folks to have them you know, give it a try and use it and see some of the benefits um, and just hear some of the positive feedback that that uh, that people have as a result of using it. Awesome. I'll definitely have a link to your channel and probably to your website as well down in the YouTube description section below. If you're on one of the podcast platforms, just search for it. It'll come up in search results. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode. I'd love for you to tune in to future episodes. 
Nick, thanks so much for coming on today. This was this was awesome. I uh, definitely expanded my brain, and I'm sure expanded a lot of people in the audience's brain as well. So thanks for sharing your knowledge, and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care. Peace out, everyone. See you in the next episode.